Hi, welcome to Global Exchanges, episode number 34. In this week's episode, I will be joined by BMO's Colin Hamilton for an in-depth discussion of China's role as a global macro counterweight to many of the phenomena which have been persisting in the global economy, but mainly externally to China. This two-year-long counterweight dynamic doesn't seem to be at an end yet, and today we will dive into a few of its implications for the foreign exchange markets and specific commodity prices. The title for this week's episode is China's Role as King Counterweight Persists. Hi, I'm Stephen Gallo, a London-based FX strategist. Welcome to Global Exchanges, presented by BMO Capital Markets. Hi, I'm Greg Anderson, a New York-based FX strategist. I'm Stephen's co-host. In each weekly podcast like today's, we discuss our perspectives on the global economy and the foreign exchange market. We also bring in guests from the FX industry and from related financial markets like commodities. We strive to make this show as interactive as possible, so don't hesitate to reach out by going to bmocm.com slash global exchanges. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Okay, so as usual, to begin the podcast, Global Exchanges, I will mark the date. It's February 22nd, 2022. And as mentioned in the introduction, this podcast is going to be focusing on China. But we're also privileged, I think, to be able to bring in a guest this time around. And for the second time, Colin Hamilton will be joining Global Exchanges. Colin is BMO's commodity analyst, and he covers a range of commodity markets, but also importantly, because of its key role in global trade and those markets, he is also one of our in-house experts on China. Colin, welcome to Global Exchanges again. Thank you, Stephen. Great to be with you. Okay, so Colin, now that I have you here, and based on the title uh, of this podcast, the idea of China acting as a global macroeconomic counterweight, uh, for the past one to two years or so, I've been referring to China as something of a counterweight to the rest of the global economy in a macro sense. So uh, for a bit of color for listeners, it initially bounced back from COVID more quickly uh, than the West. It began to withdraw stimulus earlier than the West. It entered its manufacturing stroke commodity inventory destocking phase and demand slowdown earlier than the West. And it has experienced overall lower consumer price inflation, and now it has slowing producer price inflation, while in the West we have sort of the opposite. And Chinese policymakers, probably this is the most important thing, Chinese policymakers are going in completely the opposite direction uh, with stimulus to their Western central bank and government counterparts. So as such, I want to get a sense from you on how far disinflationary forces in China can run and how much monetary and fiscal stimulus policymakers will ultimately throw at the problem. Can we expect China's role as a counterweight to Western inflation to continue, or do you think it will start to add to inflation as the stimulus feeds through? I think that's a, that's a great way of looking at it, Stephen. In terms of the, the counterweight, as you say, if we were talking about this six months ago, China was entering the energy crisis. Now you could argue that we're entering an energy crisis everywhere mm, else. Right. And China had to change policy pretty quickly to try and alleviate some of the pressures, the same way that the rest of the world may have to do um, over the coming months. What it meant, though, was 
by pulling back on commodity demand, that's the marginal buyer. And I always view China as the marginal buyer of, of commodity units, even though it's the biggest beast in the room to a certain extent. When prices get high, the Chinese buyer tends to step back first. But through that destock and through pressures in the property market, which I know we'll talk about yeah, um, yeah, during, yeah. This, uh, during this podcast, what we've seen is growth so quicker than Beijing wanted. Mm-hmm. Now, what's actually interesting, what's unusual is that Growth rhetoric started to come through. I would say November last year, we yep. started to see more growth rhetoric, but it wasn't really backed up with stimulus. They basically said the usual infrastructure lever, local governments, please go and do lots of projects, yep. try and get a, a fiscal impulse coming now, through. Now, do you, do, you, do you, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but do you think that one of the reasons for that is because of leverage risks in China already, pre-existing conditions? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. And particularly at the local government level. Mm-hmm. I mean, often in, in markets, we focus on the corporate level, mm-hmm. but at a local government level, mm-hmm. There's still a lot of concern there. That's China's Achilles heel. Right. There's still a lot of uncertainty about local debt. Right. And it's one of the key elements that are trying to eliminate in the five-year plan is this level of local government debt. But the local governments, because they hadn't been selling land to the developers for the past six months, they said, look, we've got nothing. We, have, we right. cannot do anything. Right. What it means now, we're expecting into the NPC meeting uh, coming up in a couple of weeks' time, we will see the PBOC... As they, as they said themselves, open the monetary toolbox a little bit. Mm. They'll have to go a little bit unconventional. And that's it. Now, the question is, when will it come through? Mm-hmm. In terms of actual market dynamics, we're assuming it has been more classical fixed asset investment style, perhaps social housing led. Mm-hmm. But that, these projects still take, I would say, six months to get going. Okay. Sentiment is definitely improving ahead of that. Yep. But in terms of end demand, it may take a little while. Now, in terms of it, it therefore depends where the rest of the world is in the inflation cycle at that point in time. Sure, It's very rare for China to actually stimulate. When PPI is still running at 9%, we haven't seen this before. I think they'll be trying to target it mm. rather than going broad brush right. to try and let the, some of the pressures ease. So if we, can, if we can put this into some kind of visual context for our listeners, if you were to take a look at Chinese producer price inflation right now and overlay it with, say, U.S. producer price inflation or German producer price inflation, you would basically see divergence. Yes. China China mm-hmm. edging lower in year-over-year terms and the year-over-year growth rate still accelerating, um, perhaps, though, at a, at a slower rate in, in, in the West. So the view you're taking is that the policymakers in China aren't going to be aggressive enough to reverse that we're still going to see that trend of disinflation persist, but they're going to stimulate enough so that it doesn't collapse. That is correct, yes. Okay. Uh, what we've seen is uh, what the Chinese government love is stability. Mm-hmm. And they've stabilized the energy market. Mm-hmm. So if you think of it, coal pricing has halved from the peak. Mm-hmm. Now, it's still 50% higher than the government would have liked before the energy crisis, yep. but they've, they've stabilized it at that level, and that message has got out to the wider. So. The the immediate disinflationary pressure mm-hmm. is easing a little bit, mm-hmm. but what they're now looking to do is keep it at this level mm-hmm. rather than necessarily push things higher. Makes We've had sense. a lot of, um, in commodity markets over the past month, a lot of Chinese government jawboning effectively yep. to say, look, why don't why, why are we paying so much for iron ore? Yeah. Um, why why do we why don't we uh, bring our buyers together to try and negotiate better prices? Why don't we settle in R and B? All the old classical tactics, right, right. Through, which tells me they want to push growth harder, but also tells me they are still worried about constraints at the current time. So they, I don't think they're going to stimulate enough to uh, to push inflation higher. Yep. 
but they want to be able to react yep. when inflation in the rest of the world maybe okay. starts to peak in COVID. Okay, so so the so the description of China as something of a of a global mm. macro counterweight is not really a bad one. It's no. still it's still relevant. It's still absolutely valid. In and, my and, and the other point I want to make as well is that people in the United States, Canada, uh, us, us here in Europe, uh, we're familiar with the extent to which Chinese port closures contributed mm. to supply shortages on the good side and more inflation in the West. However, I think it's important to point out that that is a function of ultimately a zero COVID strategy mm. policy and demand, which is demand hitting and disinflationary. So even though we've felt inflationary effects of it, it's still a sign that China is in a modest disinflationary cycle. Uh, absolutely. And then the banks will be lending more aggressively. Yeah. Uh, and and, and where the, when the banks lend, what they know to lend into is corporate capex. So yep. we'll see a lot more corporate capex coming through. Uh, the port closures are, are really an interesting one because the way I look at it in the rest of the world, you have to think like a purchasing manager at the moment. You spent much of the past year worried about that container that's stuck in a Chinese port. You're worried about that container again with the zero COVID policy. So for as long as China's zero COVID policy comes through, in terms of goods, there'll be some sort of risk premium in there yep. because purchasing managers will be nervous. Okay. And they will be thinking, well, I actually, I will not lose my job for overpaying for something. I'll lose my job for not having something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is what um, keeps the inflation cycle going a little bit longer mm -hmm. until end demand pushes back. Now, that's what we're waiting for. We can see when the consumer demand starts to push back up the chain. Okay, that's interesting. I have some thoughts on that in terms of its implications for the RMB. We'll, we'll, we'll cover that in a, in a little bit. All right, Colin. So at this point, uh, what I need to do for the sake of uh, our, our listeners, I, I need to uh, remind them why we're talking about China in this sense in an FX-specific podcast. I mean, what, why are we talking about the disinflationary cycle that China is in and the fact that policymakers have moved towards more stimulus, not less. Uh, this is what I want to get into now. I think the main point I would make, and again, we're back to the counterweight narrative, is, is that China's disinflationary cycle will have a bearing to a degree through spillover effects on how quickly Western central banks are going to tighten policy. Obviously, uh, they these central banks have domestic economic inflationary conditions that they have to pay attention to. But if disinflationary forces are coming from China, emanating from China, and policymakers are being relatively cautious with stimulus there, I think the first thing is that will put a break to a degree on dollar appreciation. I mean, do you want to chime in on that point, Colin, uh, and you know, either echo it, disagree with it? Well, but what, I, what I'd like to say, Stephen, is that if we think to last year, China was actually, to a certain extent, exporting some inflation to global markets I mean, in certain areas. That's if right. we think of what the world was short of, we were short of masks, we were short of healthcare equipment. We saw every government was bidding against each other for, for these products. For, for sure. So we're seeing that withdrawn, of course. So China's losing that element. We didn't see the same commodity export push in certain areas that we might have seen in the past, and that was down to the carbon policy. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting now, with the economy under pressure, well, economic growth is outweighing environmental pressures at the current time, we may see a little bit more uh, commodity price deflation. So production is under pressure. We're seeing production ramped up again across many of these commodities. We would expect it to bleed out as classical disinflationary pressure yeah. into the global markets, which we haven't seen for the past six to 12 months. And again, once that, uh, if that is going to ease the inflation cycle in the rest of the world, 
Well, that plays through into central bank policy. I, let, let me let me just ask you about something on that point. So, okay, this is uh, this is something that I have been uh, writing about or, or or signaling for a while, which is that it seemed to me that Asia in general, but more specifically China, would be moving slower than its Western counterparts, particularly Europe, on decarbonization. And you're in fact confirming that. You're, you're, you're basically saying that. Yeah, I, I do think China has a longer term strategy, but right. even in the steel market, yep. uh, they had a 2025 carbon peak. Mm-hmm. That's now been pushed back to 2030 to give them a little bit more wiggle room. It's, um, there's, and President Xi has nailed his flag to the mask. Mm. The target is there. He wants that to be part of his legacy. But for now, well, the economy needs a shot in the arm. Mm-hmm. And that's why we are seeing, uh, we're seeing a bit more policy come through to support that. And the uh, Decarbonisation efforts will be there in the background. And it'll be interesting, China's no longer funding coal-fired power plants overseas, mm-hmm. but that's a small element. We, we need to see a lot more coming through. China obviously has the best um, uh, delta in terms of potential decarbonisation, but it's going to take them longer to get there. I think this is a big issue for China's relative competitiveness. Like over the course of the year, no matter what happens with the property market, if there's an improvement in the property market or um, consumer demand relative to the export sector, that could happen as the stimulus kicks in. I still think that that slower decarbonization push in China is a hit to the relative competitiveness of U.S. exports, European exports. And so, you know, one currency pair in particular I've been focusing on is Euro-China. And I still think that that is in a medium-term, long-term downtrend. Uh, it's being held up a little bit now by uh, ECB expectations for a reduction in ECB stimulus. But from a competitiveness angle, I think that's that's something that's going to remain in vogue, uh, as they say, over the course of 2022, maybe into next year as well. And the, the only hope Europe almost has is that China, with all the um, uh, the efforts they're making in things like solar and wind, China is mm-hmm. actually the technology leader in a number of areas there, there now. So you may get more uh, disinflationary pressures coming through. But at the moment, if we think of it, bear in mind, Stephen, we have every country in the world looking to reshore away from China, mm. looking to alleviate China risk with uh, some of the some of the developments that have taken place over the past two or three years. It's going to be really uh, tough to transition, yeah. really tough to transition, especially with the regulation around decarbonization. Yeah. Okay, Colin, so uh, moving the discussion along, I think, you know, listening to you for the past, you know, just over 10 minutes or so, the gist I'm getting is that commodity prices, commodity markets are tight despite China. Would you say that's 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 correct? That's absolutely true. China has not been pushing things hard in the past six months. It has been the rest of the world. Okay, excellent. So that, I think, leads us into a brief discussion of the property market, mm. um, because obviously with Evergrande, this was a big focus last year. Uh, what assumptions about the property market are you currently making and how are they feeding into your forecast for key commodity prices? For example, the timing of the rebound, any relevant links to the autumn uh, NPC, pressure on local gov- government balance sheets, et cetera. Take, take us through that. So the key issue, so if we think of the property cycle even, new starts. Mm -hmm. So new starts and land sales continue to be very weak. We were actually expecting them to improve a little bit in the first quarter. We haven't seen that improvement. Now, clearly push is coming to shove in terms of policy. And as a result of that, we are expecting the shackles on developers to be released a little bit over the the coming period. it took China a lot longer to unwind Evergrande than we thought mm. because it had tentacles in a number of places. Right. And the challenge in the property market is the property market moves in China 
and the entire industrial economy moves with it because so much wealth is tied up uh, in, in the property side. Number one priority, stabilise property prices. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have seen the PBOC look to asset management companies and yeah. other areas to step in and stop property prices falling more because that gets you a negative wealth spiral. Yeah. Now it is getting construction activity going because quite frankly, if they don't, they will have an employment problem. There'll mm -hmm. be a lot of uh, migrant construction workers who will not have jobs to go to in the coming months. Mm. I'm expecting the PBOC to come out with more support, um, whether implicit or whether direct. And as a result, I would be expecting through the end of the second quarter to see more construction activity coming through. Seasonally, always improves in the second quarter. Okay. But we are looking for those year-on-year -year growth rates to still be negative, Okay. but to be starting to pick up. And in terms of it... That, um, from a, a commodity standpoint, yeah. where you'd look to, steel and iron ore, yeah. they're first in the building. So okay. steel, iron ore, cement, yeah. we'd be expecting uh, to see better apparent demand come through there. Base and higher prices. And, and, and higher and, prices. Okay, I mean, so you have already seen, upward. We've already seen uh, iron ore price uh, has moved actually 50% off the lows we saw last year. Okay. In expectation of the policy coming through. Okay, okay. So that's a key one. And obviously that plays through into things like the, uh, the Australian dollar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, that's a good point. So for FX listeners, I mean, I, I guess you already partly have done so, but maybe just to, to spell it out one more time. If, if you're an FX investor, what are some of these key commodity markets to watch where you might see signs of Chinese stimulus feeding through? I'm sure you've named some already, but... Yeah, absolutely. So um, so steel uh, mm -hmm. needs iron ore. Mm -hmm. And iron ore, Australia supplies 60% of, of China's needs in terms of iron ore. So that is a key trading link uh, there. Uh, in terms of the other ones I'd be looking, I mean, obviously South Africa is a big commodity supplier. Mm -hmm. uh, so with that, we'd be looking for RAND pricing, particularly as um, China has zero platinum group metals. Uh, hasn't been geologically blessed with those. So they're very reliant on South Africa in, okay. in bringing that through. So there are a couple of the areas I'd be looking towards in terms of uh, the, the, the key currencies in terms of commodity currencies into China mm -hmm. and how they might react in terms of uh, stimulus coming through. Okay, so for the the remainder of Q1 in our calendar year, the well, and perhaps even into Q2, the more supportive Chinese policymakers are of the property sector, the more potential support you might see in some of those currencies, uh, but also in, more importantly, even the commodity markets. Uh, absolutely. Okay. And uh, just put it in context for the listeners, in some of these industrial commodity markets, China is 50% of global demand. Hmm. Uh, so you get China, right? You get these commodity markets, right? Yeah, that's one of your that's one of your key phrases, which you often repeat, and it's a great phrase. It's a great. All right, Colin, I want to get back to uh, the stimulus question again, and towards the end, link it link it back to the currency. But let just frame the situation. Back end of 2019, early 2020, COVID is just getting started. China's stimulus response is just getting started. It was very much old school stimulus. It was very much focused on investment-led growth, infrastructure, net exports, uh, and so on. This time around, because the property market is so central and always has been, and because China needs to kind of rebalance a bit towards the consumer, I get a sense that we may actually see a different stimulus effect this time, where the consumer plays a greater role as the housing market rebounds. And actually, uh, what, it, what it does is on a, on a sort of growth driver basis, it lifts the consumer 
at the expense of exports in the export sector. What do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Now, the, the property sector is absolutely central to everything. Now, in previous stimulus, what you've seen is more money go to developers for them to spend more money on building more stuff. Mm -hmm. That has led to the leverage problem at the developer side. What the government is wanting to do is get more money to the consumer, get them feeling wealthier, getting them spend right, now more how are they going to do that? Well, that's an interesting one. I have a theory. Okay. <laughs> and... Um, uh, China's getting ahead of other central banks in terms of digital currency. Mm -hmm. uh, 110 million digital RMB wallets uh, available. They've piloted several schemes in various cities. I can foresee a situation where as part of the, the new monetary tools we're, we're seeing come through, uh, you get a situation where the government say, well, here you are, low to middle income uh, spenders. Bear in mind, this plays into President Xi's balancing up of his economy. Here's 300 RMB in your digital wallet. You have one month to spend it, mm. otherwise it expires, mm. on these Chinese brands, which may be ones which the the retail side are, are heavy on. Yep. Uh, they have an overhang. Yep. Now, that is such direct policy. You know where the money's going. So in a command economy structure, this makes a lot of inherent sense. Yep. And you also get the stimulus to the people you want to be spending to yep. avoid the middle income trap. So Very interesting. I, th I, I can see that. Now, obviously, this is a big shift. <laughs> and it doesn't come without its teething problems. But it may be the sort of thing we see the PBOC and, and the Beijing government look towards to get the consumer okay. which is something they haven't managed okay. to do okay. in previous efforts. Now, we, we, we haven't talked uh, so much about the dollar RMB exchange rate. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit more in, in, in this sort of towards the end section. But I think that's a possibility for an inflection point in dollar RMB, at least in terms of how much RMB appreciation versus the dollar PBOC is tolerating. because. If there's going to be a shift in growth drivers towards more domestic demand and the stimulus is driving a rebound in the housing market and the digital currency is further adding to private household consumption, then the currency becomes potentially more important for supporting the export sector. And I kind of think, based on the long-term chart for dollar RMB, that threshold is something like 625 to 630. Mm -hmm. I think in the near term, Although there, we could argue there are secular upward forces on the RMB versus the dollar medium term, secular ones, I think 625 to 630 is probably where that inflection point is going to be, assuming the stimulus sticks and, and, and comes into play later this year. I would, I would fully concur with that. And, and it is um, the Chinese government takes more active and less active roles in this. Yep. But there's no doubt that it is a transition for them. And, and when they're trying what may be some new policy, they want still the export sector to play some role. But over the longer term, I think the, the, the trend is pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, Stephen, I, I have a question for you. Okay. Now that we're talking exchange rates, yep. uh, which is your uh, bailiwick, yeah. <laughs> dollar RMB, mm -hmm. it's been, if you want, surprisingly stable to a certain extent over the past six, 12 months. Why do you think that's been, and what do you think breaks that? Okay, yeah, I think I think it's a great question. I think there are a few factors here. Uh, the first of all, the current account balance, the current account surplus. China has also been on the receiving end, I think, of significant financial account inflows. I've been talking about the speed of Chinese decarbonization relative to the U.S. and Europe as a good thing for Chinese competitiveness, but that's probably less of a short-term thing and more of a medium-term thing. So there have been a number of things on the inflows side which have 
clearly supported the RMB. But I think even more importantly is what Chinese policymakers have not allowed to happen on the outflow side. So there's been a buildup of foreign currency inflows into China, and policymakers have really not allowed any of that to flow back out again. Now, I have my theories as to why this could be the case. Um, the first is, I think, given global inflation pressures, of course, mainly outside of China, policymakers are concerned about an economic growth slowdown, both in the developed world and also the developing world or the EM world, having ramifications for EM currencies. And I think by being cautious with outbound flow, policymakers in China are attempting to prevent the RMB from being the epicenter or the cause or the catalyst for that sell-off in EM currency. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, here we are, we're at the start, we're nearing the start of the Fed's tightening campaign. I guess there's a risk that the Fed is even more aggressive than what's currently priced in. Certainly, China is going to be cautious with the degree of outbound flow it allows until we have certainty over how much or how quickly the Fed is going to move. I think those are those are those are two of the uh, of the reasons why we've seen that caution on outbound flow. We've seen that stability in dollar RMB. All right, Colin. I think we're nearly there. Um, what what we're going to do here is I think we're going to end the podcast kind of where we started it thematically. So we were talking about China's role as a global counterweight. Are there any specific things you're going to be looking at over the coming weeks and months? To give you an indication of whether or not that status as a counterweight is being maintained, or if it's going the other way and now China is actually starting to add to global inflationary pressures, what is it? There's one thing I really keep a focus on, and mm-hmm. it is the China copper import premium. Mm-hmm. So it's what a buyer is paying to pull material into China for refined copper, because China's a net importer there. Um, if they're starting to pull more in material, that premium will go up. Yep. And that's a sign that they are actually coming through the stimulus cycle ahead of the global inflation picking and coming down. Okay. But, but that's not your base case. That's not my base case. Yeah. And at the moment, that the import arbitrage for copper into China is shut. That premium is very low. Mm-hmm. Chinese buyers, mm-hmm. as of now, are still acting as a counterweight. Right. They are still pulling back yep. when the rest of the world wants, wants goods. Yep. And I only expect that to be picking up Yep. When, number one, the copper price is probably a little lower. Yep. And secondly, demand in the rest of the world is starting to fade. Very, very strategic. That is the main message, I think, from from, from this podcast. Policymakers, they are very strategic. Colin, this has been excellent. Thank you so much for, for joining me on Global Exchanges. We'll hope to have you again soon. Thank you for having me, Stephen. It's been excellent. And to our listeners, thanks very much again for tuning in. Until next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Global Exchanges. Listen to past episodes and find transcripts at bmocm.com slash global exchanges. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email or reach out to us on Bloomberg. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.